it's very common in economics to go and do things like we're going to find out whether the minimum wage really reduces employment. Sorry. Show me the paper where they try to find out whether asparagus really has a negatively sloped demand curve. Nobody does that. It's just accepted as, well, obviously asparagus is going to have a negatively sloped demand curve. Obviously, if you raise the price of asparagus, people buy less asparagus. And then the question is, all right, fine. Suppose we go and we subject that position on asparagus to the same kind of research scrutiny that we've done for labor demand. Do you really think there aren't going to be a few papers saying, oh, it turns out that asparagus actually people buy more and the price is higher? But put that next to the prior and then do what Bayes told us, which is do an update of a super strong prior with some evidence that is so-so at best. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Brian Kaplan, his third time on the show. Brian is a professor of economics at George Mason University and the author of many books, including the topic of today's discussion, You Will Not Stampede Me, Essays on Nonconformism. We discuss friendship, moral crusades, education, and its role in these moral determinations, friendliness, Tocqueville in America, and the future of Argentina and macroeconomics. I hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, the best way to help us out is to let a friend know, either in person or online. For some people in the world, there's nothing quite like your recommendation specifically. And if you enjoy the show, hopefully this will be not just a help to us, but a help to the person you're recommending it to. Without further ado, here's Brian Kaplan. So I couldn't help but notice that your latest book is dedicated to Robin Hanson, a mutual friend, former guest on this podcast. Uh, why is that? Why is it dedicated to Robin Hanson? Well, Robin Hanson is my best friend in the world, and he is a extreme nonconformist. He puts me to shame. He's often just unaware of what he even should be conforming to. I've told him <laughs> a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. Say, so, so like there's a trade-off here. You could conform to this. And there are plenty of cases where it's like, this is one where actually there are consequences. Usually there aren't. And yet at the same time, he also has some very funny views about the kinds of blowback that you might get from being a nonconformist. So he's reflexively a nonconformist to the level where he doesn't even know what he's doing, and yet he has some exaggerated views of well, how bad the consequences would be if he deliberately nonconformed. And so I often find myself, as usual, just trying to help my friend out. Uh, he's you know, genius, but at the same time, as some geniuses, a little lacking common sense, and I try to tell him what he can get away with and what he can't get away with. It's interesting. And, and from the kind of... Brian Kaplan, Robin Hanson spectrum. I think I maybe identify more with Robin's outlook on kind of where the world is heading. Uh, <laughs> he's been on the, the the fertility collapse, dark age kind of thing uh, recently. I recently spoke with uh, Simone and Malcolm Collins, who are also on that, mm-hmm. uh, who are really looking on that. And... I do think like something very distinct about you, especially as opposed to a lot of other kind of non-conformist voices, is that you're very positive. You're very happy, you know, uh, 
And, you know, nonconformism is an opportunity. You look around the world and say all these people are doing things just because other people are doing them. And what would happen if they didn't do them? Sometimes it ruins your life, but more often, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> That's true. You, That's you, true. You, like, no one else is wearing shorts. Well, I'm going to wear shorts. Like, what'll happen? Someone that you don't know and will never see again looks at you funny. All right, I can live with that. Right. So, so is your. Is your kind of positive disposition, um, if you want to call it that, uh, maybe we're we're all just comparatively negative. I don't know, but but is that disposition um, something that you kind of choose as a communication strategy, or is that just like is is that just the vibe? I think the real story is this. I really love talking to people, so anytime I'm talking to people, I'm very positive. Sincerely, it's not something that I have to work on. I'm not positive all the time. Usually I'm least positive when I'm alone. Hmm, That's interesting. Which is a lot of why I just try to be around people and doing things all the time and why COVID was such hell for me. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I remember you were talking about the the right way to teach economics, right? This was the the economists going to finish school, uh, finishing school uh, essay. And you're talking about how, you know, a lot of, uh, economic facts are just hard to put nicely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's no way to be perfectly safe, <laughs> right? But there's no like... such thing as perfect safety. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like a lot of the 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 way you kind of present these uh, economic truths, it's uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's definitely very different. It's definitely, you know, it's definitely with a smile. It's definitely like very enthusiastically and. Yeah, especially when you are the bearer of bad news, better to do it with some, better, better, you know, better, better to make it a little funny. And I mean, and honestly, if you go and pay much attention to stand up comedians, a high share of of comedy is just saying ugly truths and laughing about them. I think it's a lot from those guys. Yeah. Are you planning a a comeback uh, second comedy set? Yeah, good question which I think does uh, reflect the nonconformism. I got this offer to do stand-up comedy and I've been wanting to do it for a long time. So yeah, uh, this semester, the econ undergraduate club at GMU has asked me to do some more stand-up comedy. So thinking I'll write some new material for them. I do have a big wiki full of ideas, which I think are pretty good. And yeah, I, I thought the first one was pretty good uh, for the yeah. audience. Well, yeah, I'm not, like, I'm, I'm not a professional. What I felt, what made me feel really good is I got to start at the Comedy Cellar arguably the very top of stand-up comedy. I was on a panel with eight professional stand-up comedians and I was not obviously the worst one. So, and they do this for a living and I'd never done it before. Right. So going back to the kind of finishing or or the kind of like communication uh, line, do you think this is a learnable skill? Do you think that, you know, Let's take Robin out. Do you think that someone like me, who I think as like someone who's pretty uh, pessimistic, you know, for, first of all, uh, can I learn to kind of uh, be a lot more cheerful when presenting these ideas, which I do think are true and I do think are important um, in many cases are the source of my pessimism or uh, and if so, is it is it kind of worth the cost? Yeah, there's pretty much nothing in the world you can't improve at. I remember I was once having lunch with Steve Cece, who is one of the greatest psychologists of all time. And um, 
he is in particular knows everything about intelligence testing, skills, skill acquisition. And I asked him, is there anything whatsoever that has ever been studied where people cannot improve with practice? And he thought about it for about a minute and said, no. Went, All right. <laughs> you can improve at virtually anything through practice. If you want to definitely affect a more cheerful disposition, you can do it. Uh, how? Just start taking marginal measures, baby steps in that direction. That's uh, where you start. Let's see. In terms of sincerely having a more cheerful disposition, fantastic book by Julian Simon called Good Mood. You probably know him as the author of The Ultimate Resource, too. If you read his stuff, it's like, this guy is super cheerful. In Good Mood, he said that he was terribly depressed for many years. And then finally, he got to a point in his life where he said, you know what? I'm going to wrap up all my projects, then I'm going to spend full time researching depression and how to get over it. He did that, and Good Mood is the book that results from this. Uh, what he said is that being unhappy results from negative self-comparisons, and you can make yourself more happy by changing the self-comparisons you're doing. You know, don't compare yourself to your greatest hero in the world when you're saying how successful I've been. Compare yourself to a normal person or compare yourself to what you would have thought was possible when you were 15 uh, and just make a habit of doing this. I'd say also a big part of improving your mood is just spending more time with people who are in a good mood. And so, you know, spending time with people in general is good for mood, but especially spending time with other positive people is very good for that. And just practicing. Uh, I mean, I would say I'm also a big fan of this book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. A lot of what he teaches are specific things to do. And then it be, I will say to me, like, it's actually like a video game. It's like, well, what kind of score would Dale give me in this scenario based upon different things I could say? And once you start practicing, after a while, you start stop thinking about the score and it becomes internalized. So yeah, there are a lot of ways that you can improve your mood. Is it worth it? Honestly, I think there's few things that are more worth it. Like my younger son is always talking about if I were a billionaire, this, if I were a billionaire, that. And I'm like, well, if you're a billionaire, you'd still basically have the same problems you have now. Like, you're like, it's not like you're wanting for food or anything. Why not think about if I could find something that I really enjoy doing every day or I could find some more really good friends? These are things that would actually really transform your life. Right. Um, I'm actually not sure where you fall on the spectrum, but there, there's a spectrum of kind of conformity as sort of rational economic behavior or, or rational kind of evolutionary behavior. And then there's conformism as like basically an error, right? Basically, you know, like there, there's a $20 bill on the ground uh, that you can get by acting a little weird and people just don't do it. Uh, where, where on the spectrum do you kind of fall? Because I've, I've right. seen you so write. Actually, the first two yeah. things you said, I think are directly incompatible and two and three are almost the same because he started with it's a rational decision, which I think is wrong. And then you say, you know, irrational or at least an evolved response to the human being, to a human being's ancestral environment. That's, I think the real story. Okay. I think that being highly conformist is something where if you live in a primitive band of 20 to 40 people, if you start doing things that are different from other people, even if they are good ideas themselves, people won't like you and it's going to get you killed or at least not having any offspring. Um, 
Now, why is it a mistake? It's a mistake because the ancestral environment is so different from the modern environment. The, the modern environment, almost everyone is anonymous most of the time. Just you walk away from your friends and family, walk away from your job and just wander. And you've got total anonymity practically. So it's because of that anonymity that you have so much latitude to actually try new ideas out with minimal consequences. And even with the people that you know, there's just a lot more flexibility. You've got so much better exit options. If you're a caveman and you don't like your tribe or your band, it's like, well, is there another band around that'll take a random caveman that doesn't get along with the existing group of cavemen he's with? Uh, it doesn't sound like a good bet. But modern world, you're not happy with your group. Look around. There's all kinds of other groups or form your own. I remember when I was in high school, I wanted to run a Dungeons and Dragons game. I just started profiling people. I said, that guy seems like a nerd. Maybe he wants to be in my D&D game. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly they haven't even played, but it's like, yeah, there's this game. It's like, oh, I heard about it. All right, well, you should be part of my group. And yeah, I was the the, the, or, the, the nerd organizer in my D&D game in high school. Uh, so I did create a band of nerds out of nothing. I wasn't lonely, I but I was the organizer. Or as Tyler sometimes called me, the social glue. I was the social glue. I found people and I brought them together. Yeah, I have a similar story from uh, university. This was kind of um, went through kind of mid pandemic and then everyone came back and just decided, you know what, I'm just going to talk to, you know, like three, four hundred random people and like <laughs> choose, you, choose the best people. Um and it worked. It, it, it was like, it was the best friend group. It, it was, you know, the group chat is still going. It's uh, a great success. I recommend it to a lot of people. Uh, something something that's related is that you talk about uh, how economists find consistency consistently that people uh, just don't fire people, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of see the same thing with like friends, right? <laughs> and, and I'm not someone who thinks that, you know, like, you could, you should only be friends with people for kind of like business reasons. That's not what I mean. I mean, like the people will have friends that they actively do not like being around, yes. who they do not like as friends. And yeah, just, classic you know, South Park continue. Episode, uh, yeah. classic, uh, classic South Park episode, Scott Tenorman must die. Um, Stan, Kyle and Kenny are all telling Scott Tenorman that Cartman is planning on doing something terrible to him. And then he finally Scott Tenorman, the eighth grader just says, how do you know all this stuff? because we're his friends, then why are you telling me? Because we hate him. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. But you see, I mean, I'm sure you know people who, who act like this as well, right? Yeah. I mean, the story that you're telling, it reminds me, this is a bizarre idea, but one of the main effects of conformism is not meeting people in the real life. And you're like, so you start off with this idea of, oh, I can't go and just, and I have to be worried about what other people think about me. And this leads you to be afraid to go and introduce yourself to a total stranger. It's like the only way it would even matter what they thought of you is if they did become your friend. So just go and talk to people and just take your chances. What's the, what's the harm? As long as they remain strangers, it doesn't matter. And, and again, in terms of, under, of seeing how evolved this is, just try to get a kid to talk to a stranger and you'll see they really don't want to do it. It's like, what do you think is going to happen? I don't want to. Even like, go order some fries. Here's five bucks. Go to that guy and say you want your fr want fries. No, I'll just go hungry. I don't want to talk to a stranger and ask for fries. 
<laughs> yeah. So, so maybe a strike against the evolutionary argument. Uh, actually, I'm not sure if you agree with this, but I think this has gotten a lot worse. Like, I think people my age are much worse at this than like people your age. Well, I mean, but were you are, are you worse than we were at the same age? That's the yeah. real question. I, I definitely think that that's true. I mean, I, I don't know, you know, like, obviously I wasn't alive back then, but cer- certainly I think that's the kind of, maybe this is kind of like hindsight bias. Maybe this is kind of like the stories people tell and they're kind of exaggerating how social they were. But yeah, it's possible, but this is a perennial part of the human condition is being afraid to go and reach out to other people, being afraid to talk to someone. You know, if you never talk to strangers, you never make any friends. And yet, this is the way that I can remember people being forever, really. Uh, you know, like That doesn't rule out marginal changes. I mean, I would say that one big change for me was just the internet, where the anxiety of approaching a stranger is definitely lower through, through email than face-to-face, which again fits with this whole evolutionary story that email is just so abnormal in evolutionary terms. You don't have the normal cues of why you should be afraid because you don't see the person's face. You know, you, you know, you, you know, there was no, there was no such thing as a audio only introduction during ancestral times, but now there is, or, you know, just a written introduction. So there's that. Right. So from this story, uh, social media is a huge boon, right? Because it just <laughs> makes people less risk averse. Yeah. And I do think there are a lot of people who start off where they would have been too nervous to approach someone in real life, but they meet them online and then they meet them in person. Uh, that is one thing that this generation really has going for it that mine didn't have. It used to be really hard to find people with common interests. It's just like I've got to take the people that are around me and convince them to start sharing my interests because I'm not going to be able to locate people that are interested in this in meet space. Right, right, exactly. Uh you know, people kind of look at the the second order of uh, effects of this and they complain about it, right? Like that's, uh, you know, because of social media, people now have an alternative and they're not meeting people mm-hmm. in person. Do you think it's been a net negative or a net positive? I still think it's a big net positive. It's easy to go and focus on the negatives and especially if you've got a really ugly story, but overall, I do think that it is a major positive. The only things that really give me doubt like COVID, if we didn't have the internet, would we have socially distanced for anywhere nearly as long as we did? And I think no. I don't think they would have actually shut down the economy if there was no real possibility for telework, for example. And let's see. And then another one that's pretty striking, if you look at how people meet their romantic partners, there's been a huge rise in online combined, of course, with a crash in face-to-face, especially on the job. Would we have gotten such a crazy attitude towards on-the-job dating, uh, this puritanical notion of just to ask as harassment, if we didn't have the, the alternative of online? Second one, I kind of think we would have. I just think that it's such a religion to, be, to always side with the person that's more offended in on-the-job relations. Like, the, work, the job is not the proper place for this kind of thing. It's like, why the hell not? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I think I'm not completely sure on this, but I think in Richard Hanania's book, he talks about the development of harassment law and it happens a bit before social media. Yeah, maybe the internet causes it. Yeah, but, you know, there can be a chain reaction where 
you know, like first you have the law and then people are looking around for alternatives and then fortuitously we've got the internet and that boosts it even further, which then changes norms in an even more dysfunctional direction. Yeah, that seems that seems plausible. Uh, right. One and, more you know, point so this, on the this, this essay did not make the book, but uh, I would say this is a nonconformist point. I have this thought experiment that I'm a big fan of, and it just says, suppose that you go and set your own attractiveness on a zero to 10 scale, knowing that you'll get all the good and all the bad of your attractiveness, what would you set? When I did this poll, I was actually surprised that for both men and women, 10 is the standard response. Even when you lead the witness and say there will be some bad results of this, which of course there are some downsides to being really attractive. I was expecting that the typical reaction women would be say they want to be an eight or maybe a nine, but it's actually 10. It's like, well, so apparently we've got a whole system in place on the job to spread fear to the point where everybody gets treated like they're a five or worse. Right. right. You, avo- you avoid the bad of being greater than five, but you avoid all the good of being greater than five. And yeah, the good's worth more than the bad. And yeah, that, I think that's not that, just that, my just... opinion. This is you know, men and women survey degree. Yeah, I think this is just a, a rule of the sensitive minority, right? Like, you know, yep. 10% of people want to be a three and absolutely, <laughs> you know, will you know, we'll cry about you know, it. Like if the sex minority enforces it. Five or above. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think most people now will pay lip service to, it's just not appropriate to ask out a coworker. And it's like, why the hell not? Well, it's just not the right place. Not the right place. It's the incorrect location. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, <laughs> it's, I think I've like, I think I've spoiled my, uh, my friend group by telling them too much about civil rights law. That's always my answer, you know? Um, it's always just like, you know, this is illegal by civil rights law. However, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think that's, you know, like Richard, like Richard says, there's a lot to be, um, the the kind of like second and third order effects of uh, of these laws are really underestimated by people. I think people get like the first order effects, you know, they 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 understand that it's like bad that we don't let, you know, smart Asians and whites into college. Um, you know, it's 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 bad that we um don't hire the best person for the job. But there are all of these like things that, you know, you can kind of connect on the conspiracy board. And like, I, I, I don't use that as like a negative. I think that, you know, these things actually are connected. Yeah, I teach uh, summer school for very advanced high school kids. Part of the fun is just getting to do discussion sections that are totally freewheeling. And when I ask them questions like this, they'll give the stock re-answers. Oh, no, no, you must never go and ask at a coworker. And then I just say, what if it's true love? And <laughs> just look at their faces. <laughs> like, well, uh, you know, true love, even if it is true love, you should just wait. And like, like you're going to wait three you years. You wait until you get fired. Yeah. Yeah. I say, like, you're going to wait three years. If it's true love, you don't want to wait three hours. <laughs> just to see them sort of reacting like, well, I guess it was true love. <laughs> yeah, I do think. I don't know. What what do you think was the was the cause of this this shift? Was it was it as Richard says, was it civil rights law? I think it's civil rights law interacting with feminism. 
So you've got feminism, which is a standalone religion. It would exist even without the law, but it does give them this big advantage, which is it is basically legal to be openly anti-feminist on the job because you're creating a hostile workplace environment. And also it's just very hard to go and express these views. Oh, you know, one view is very is very easy to express. Another view is very hard to express, very hard to push back because even arguing against it is a, you could construe as some kind of hostile workplace. So I think you know, the law matters, but the religion of feminism is a big deal. So it's one that has spread uh, from being a tiny minority of the population to a much larger share. In the process, fortunately, it gets diluted. So there are a lot of people who say they're feminists where it just means almost nothing. They're sort of like the Unitarians of feminism. But on the other hand, the median has gotten pretty bad, I think. Yeah. So, so tying into this, you describe a process that you call a crusade. Well, what is a crusade? Yeah. Crusade is for society. It's you know, a problem that everyone is supposed to be strongly against and in the same way. The way I describe the key features, you've got hysteria where there's a problem and you're not allowed to say, well, is it really a problem or is it the worst problem? Maybe it's problem number 17 and we've got more serious problems. You know, like, if there's hysteria, none of that. You've got to talk as if it's the most pressing problem in the world. And then combining with the hurting, you've got to be with other people on this. You can't even really deviate from the way. You can't say, okay, well, like, sure, we need to fight the war on terror, but it's not a, not Iraq we should be invading, it's Saudi Arabia. It's like, no, 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 shut up. We're, we're attacking Iraq right now. <laughs> and you've got to be on board with that. That is the way we fight the war on terror. We're freaked out. We're doing this. And anybody that is trying to just continue the discussion is themselves a big part of the problem. Uh, in this piece, Crusades and You, I just go over all the crusades that I've lived in my life. I think a big part of, of to be the, the, a real crusade, it's got to be bipartisan. And there are just a bunch of bipartisan crusades that have happened definitely over my lifetime. It doesn't mean that there isn't any. All right, I think we're seeing gap. one now. Yeah. And then, you know, like, you know, yeah, but it doesn't mean there isn't any partisan gap at all in how absolutely enthusiastic they are. But normally you have to wait for a while for it to be revealed because whichever side is not as gung ho as the other during the initial stage, like, no, no, we are every bit as gung-ho as the other. In fact, we're more gung-ho than the other. Right. This is something, this is something a friend of mine brought up, uh, Lump in Space on Twitter. He talks about, um, he, he talks about the internet as having this effect where people no longer remember their kind of past positions, right? So someone who might've been very uh, <laughs> against, um, kind of shutdowns for other viruses or or even, you know, like against against travel shutdowns for COVID suddenly become very gung-ho on it. You know, someone who might have uh, op- opposed more uh, airport security or more uh, or more international wars mm-hmm. uh, to, you know, quote unquote, fight terrorism uh, suddenly becomes very enthusiastic about it. You know, maybe, you know, someone it's who almost has... the opposite. The Internet is the first thing that's allowed us to go and show that people have changed their minds before the Internet. Only famous people could really be demonstrated to change their minds. I mean, like maybe in your small circle of friends. But what are the odds that they you know, that you've given them your giant list of positions and that they remember them? I think it's the Internet that allows us to really say, wait a second, you haven't changed your mind, which 
you know, you would think would be a bigger advantage, but unfortunately it's not. <laughs> right, right. You see this as a kind of like selection effect problem. Yeah, you know, where, so during, like, during COVID lockdowns, there were definitely people saying, let's go and look at what the CDC's pre-COVID standards were for taking different measures. And they were able to show that that by the CDC standards, you'd have to have a much higher infection fatality rate to justify closing the schools, for example, than what they really did. So you could go and demonstrate the contradiction, but the problem is during the crusade, people are too hysterical to go and look back at what's going on. Like you're just drowned out by the anger and the panic and then combined with the hurting, it's like, okay, well, maybe I did say something else, but quiet. No, like I'm on board now. Like we, we talk all day about what I said before, but now we see that in the midst of this terrible situation, we must take actions that when we were planning calmly, we didn't think were a good idea. <laughs> right. And it's almost like, it's almost like that's the true, truest believer, right? Like the, the, there's a kind of zeal of converts. There, there's a kind of value in having converts as well, right? You can kind of mm-hmm. brag about like, oh, we had this person who was opposed to our issue and now we now, now they're uh, in favor of our issue. Hmm. There's definitely a bit of that, although I barely remember anything like that during COVID. It was more like everyone now has to be super concerned and take drastic action and become socially isolated for as long as it takes. It's the main reaction that I saw. Right. right. And then it was mostly skeptics who were just saying, wait a second, this guy said something different before. Right. I mean, I mean uh, you know, although like, if you really look at it, the main thing that people would point to was hypocrisy of action. Like there's a big lockdown person who goes and slips off to see his mistress. That's the kind right, of thing. Right. That was like the British. California as a dinner. That's the stuff that really gets attention. A lot more than previously wrote a paper saying that we shouldn't do this under these conditions. We're in these conditions, but now you say we should. What gives? That's just so, way too intellectual for a during crusade. People, yeah, are, he, people don't read papers, right? Yeah, yeah. right. I do think I, I do think that's the case. Yeah, you get so uh, much more mileage out of a photograph of the governor of California eating dinner during COVID than you do out of putting side by side quotes what he said in 2019, what he's saying now. Right. So when you're using when you're thinking about these crusades, do you, do you look at any kind of uh, historical or philosophical models? I'm thinking about maybe like Timur Curran's model mm-hmm. of like a preference cascade, or like maybe Gerard's scapegoating. Do, yeah, do you so, see do you see many value in those kind of theories? Yeah, I mean Timur Curran, I like that stuff a lot. I mean, a big part of Timur's story though is that a lot of people secretly disagree, right? Which, at least to the beginning of the crusade, I think that's pretty rare. I think that this is, again, comes back to basic human conformity. It's fundamental psychology that when everybody else is really worried about something and wants to do the same thing, it takes a lot of effort to think anything else and do anything else. You've really got to have developed what Frank Herbert and Dune called the mental, didn't you call it like mental muscles or something like that of resisting. Uh, now, once it goes on for a while, that's where we do start to see that people actually don't believe in it nearly as much as they say, and that's why they start breaking the rules. But it takes a while. So initially, people seem very enthusiastic, and I don't think that it's an act. There's a few people reacting, but I think initially it's not an act. But then as time goes on, that's where another basic psychological trait of 
apathy and hedonic adaptation kick in, which do tend to at least dilute the danger. Um, I mean, I remember after about like a year into COVID, I was talking to some friends like, I don't think this will ever end. And they're like, no, no, it's going to end. Human beings are not capable of continuing for this kind of garbage forever. Don't, you know, just because it lasted for a year doesn't mean it will last two. So in the end, I will claim vindication on this, but I can see why they would start to wonder if things were just changed forever. Right. Yeah, I definitely thought it was temporary, but I think that, I mean, that, that, this like goes to Timur Koran's model. Like I had read it before, but even I didn't think like, I, I thought there would be a lot of mi- middle stages, right? Mm-hmm. I thought it would be more like, uh, maybe more like China or more like Japan, where there's a kind of like gradual relaxation mm-hmm. of it. Um, but that that really isn't what happened, right? Not not in the United States, and I believe not in Europe as well. I mean, the most extreme case of this, I was actually in England right before Freedom Day when they removed a ton of restrictions. And the right. day before Freedom Day, those Brits were following all the rules. And the day after, hardly anyone was. See. I mean, this really does fit with the idea of the British as being especially conformist to the point where it's like, well, the rules are the rules. You can't just do whatever you want to do. And then it's like, and then the rules are gone. Well, the rules are gone. And I remember this like three days after Freedom Day, we were on a British train. You no longer had to wear masks anymore. And there was one guy who was still in a mask who asked another guy if he would just uh, you know, put on his mask too. And then the guy who was asked just looked at him and said, you're going to be a complete psychopath about it. I'll just leave. <laughs> he just walked away from him. It's like, would you have done that three days ago when freedom, before Freedom Day? He's like, oh, no, of course, of course. Oh, so, so he said he would have. Uh, well, so, you know, like, uh, the second part is what I'm imagining. What we saw was after Freedom Day, the guy reacted very negatively because it was no longer a rule. He considered a per- the guy a psychopath just for asking. But before, the Brits were very observant. Um, and again, you might think it's just fear of punishment. Punishments were trivial. I mean, like the whole thing was just a, was a, was a farce, really. Like you, They'll say that uh, if the... Foreign visitors were supposed to co- were supposed to quarantine for two weeks. To verify this, they call you on the phone and ask you what you're doing. <laughs> right? Are you quarantining? Uh, yes. Okay. Very good. <laughs> right. Right. Or you know, like you also. Oh no, I'm at the store. Oh well, you're entitled to be at the store. Very good. Yeah. So, so there's an interaction there, which is like that. You're you're imagining the guy would say that he he would have always he would have always you know rejected. The, the, the guy called the, the, the other guy a psychopath, um, as opposed to kind of admitting that, you know, uh, three days ago they would have followed the followed yeah, I mean, he the, was just a, the he, He's just a stranger. I think that to him, what was psychopathic was caring after the rule was changed. Right, right. So so are you saying that like he, he would have said like, oh, of course, three days ago I would have I, I, obeyed I, the yeah. rules? He's a total or... stranger, but that's my view. Okay, I see. Okay, then maybe maybe we don't disagree. Um, yeah, th- this goes goes back to the Timur Quran model of like, or like the big question is like whether people have like consistent preferences at all, right? They definitely have, you know, behaviors. The behaviors definitely change. Early lockdown, there was a lot more compliance than later lockdown. Um, a lot less hypocrisy. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so actions change. I mean, if you think of there being a consistent preference for conformity. I think you know, there's that. There's also a consistent preference for convenience. 
Right. These are intention <laughs> to some degree. And that's I think, a lot of why people start breaking rules after a while. So they're so inconvenient. Right. That's fair enough. So, so the convenience uh, or the inconvenience increases, things become less convenient. Right. Well, more you know, also, once you understand a lot of the conformity is enforced by the hysteria and it's like, you look around, well, the people aren't hysterical anymore, so they won't get mad at me. If I start breaking rules, so I guess I'll break some rules. Right. They get tired. The, the intensity mm-hmm. goes from, you know, goes from something very intense to something much less intense. And then that actually really matters. Um, yeah, so people do have, a, have some understanding of how much do total strangers care. The insight of who cares what total strangers think is very hard for people to get over, I think, for basic evolutionary reasons. But a lot of why I wrote You Will Not Stampede Me essays on nonconformism is to help people to get over it. So again, you don't get over it in a single step or a single big jump. You just need to turn your dial and start trying to do things that you think are a good idea that are not accepted by the rest of society. Yeah, you, you talk about um, needing, needing to demonize an outgroup mm-hmm. in many of these cases, right? But I sort of see, I don't know, I'm not sure if we actually disagree with this. I, I, I can tell a story where, like, if the outgroups are big enough, there's kind of, like, a, an actual competition. Like, I, I'd much rather have the current state of polarization where it kind of is actually close to 50-50, um, Democrat-Republican. Not not all issues line up like that, but um, it, it, it's, it's actually kind of nice that there's a solid contingent of Republicans who will... Uh, react negatively by default. Um, you know, like like Timur Karan says, you just need need a relatively small threshold. If you have like a threshold of twenty percent of Republicans who just absolutely hate anything that the Democrats propose, and they react negatively, and then it turns out that you know maybe maybe those twenty percent are right, or like vice versa, right? Democrats who just hate anything Republicans are up to. Um, yeah, in in terms of just insurance, you're totally right. Because, like, well, I'm worried that some new horrible hysteria was going to sweep the country. It's like, well, it's really hard because there's 20% of the population will just be against whatever the other group's for. And that gives you some protection. Uh, so, yeah, that was definitely true during COVID. Again, at the very beginning, this was less apparent. But it really only took about four to six weeks before you started seeing Republican opposition to very strict COVID measures. And in the red estates policy change really, really quickly. Right. And not coincidentally, I wound up spending a lot of time in those states. <laughs> during COVID. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. People, people choose, right? You saw that, you know, people left California, California reversed the policies. There no, there's no longer, you know, any distinction, I think, between well, well, it took, it took California and Texas. Yeah. I mean, what's striking is I was looking back. at the data and people were much more willing to leave Strict, strict COVID states than they were to go to strict COVID states. Pretty striking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So, so, so like, as long as that difference was there, there was a kind of consistent migration pattern out of the, out, out of the strict states, which, which let's face it, were basically, you know, the same as the same as the democratic, uh, the democratic vote share in those states. Um, and, and then like that ended and then people, people, you know, people move back. Right. Um, so, so, so there's a there's a view of this that's like, 
polarization is a sort of you can frame it as either a necessary evil or the lesser of two evils um or even as as i frame it as a kind of moral good um yeah i mean on any issue that i care about i do think how can we get over polarization so in Open Borders, I have a chapter where I'm trying to get over polarization on immigration. In my new book that's coming out in April, Build Baby Build, The Science and Ethics of Housing Regulation, I again try to show why both Democrats and Republicans should be on board with the same idea for their own different reasons. So when I've got an idea that I think is good, then I realize, oh, gee, polarization is going to make it really hard to do it. And I then just try to go and talk to everybody like they're my best friend and say, look, you know, like, don't think of it as giving the other side what they want. Think of it as doing what you want for your own good reasons. And the other side, they got the, they're going to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. So, uh, <laughs> but that's still something worth taking advantage of. Um, right, yeah, right. Yeah, whereas obviously, I don't like a, a policy, and most policies that exist, I think, are bad. Definitely, the Crusades are bad. That's where, like, come on, polarize, polarize. Don't agree. But even on immigration, don't you think that like you're a lot closer to an open border when there's more polarization? Like like compared to um everything other than like very, very recently, right? Historically there's a kind of stampede, well maybe not with the urgency, but there there's, you know, the crowd the crowd belief, you know, like it's it's a majority belief of like opposing immigration. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, so can't you can't you argue? And I think that this did happen under Trump. That like immigration attitudes just got like negatively polarized against Trump, and that's why you know that's why a lot of left wing people now support more immigration. I know this data really well. I'd say that the correct answer is it's real complicated. Uh, it's correct that it used to be that almost everyone was against immigration. So for decades, it was. In the, the percentage of the population favoring more immigration in the U.S. was under 10%. It was in the single digits roughly for decades. And then around 2020, support started rising, went from about 10% uh, then to about 30% favoring more. Uh, however, if you go and fit a trend line to it, you'll see that there, for the Democrats, there's a really steep spike up going from maybe 15 to 50 and for Republicans, there's a flat spike, but also up going from maybe 5 to 15. So it doesn't look like a great example of polarization in the public opinion data. Uh, what I would say is that polarization during those decades when most people wanted to have less immigration did prevent them from reducing immigration further because there were just enough people that didn't want you know, in Congress who didn't want to reduce it. Generally, you know, so a co- really a coalition of left-wing Democrats and what are called pro-business Republicans were against reducing immigration. Uh, the pro-business Republicans would be people representing districts where they've got a lot of hospitality workers or agricultural workers who are either on guest worker passes of different kinds or they're just illegal and they just want to look the other way. But anyway, so the polarization made it really hard to get any legislative change. Uh, what now, what I'd say is that it would be almost impossible to get any kind of legislative change. And rather, what we see is wild oscillations in immigration policy based upon who is the president. And it's just all a matter of are you telling Homeland Security to enforce strictly and put kids in the cages or telling them to release people on their own recognizance? Uh, 
Now, even with Trump, the amount of immigration that he was letting in, I think pre-COVID only fell by about 20%. It was COVID itself that really caused immigration to pretty much disappear. On the right. other hand, this that, was, that, like that was true all over the world. Right. There's basically every Western country essentially ended immigration during COVID, as far as I know. Yeah, uh, I've had Alex Alex Narostal on this podcast. Um, yeah, the kind of executive powers over immigration are kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. That like, you know, some <laughs> mid-level bureaucrat can just decide like, oh, our embassy, it, it's just not doing interviews now. Zoom interviews, they're, they're not safe, you know. <laughs> there, there's just no more immigration from this country now. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is so bizarre because tourism reopened long before immigration. And if you're going to be worried about people spreading COVID, obviously tourists should be are the bigger deal than immigrants because the immigrants, you could give them a really long quarantine and under strict conditions, and they will still come because they're getting big gains. They're going to stay for a long time. Whereas tourists, on the other hand, if we're one month in a Canadian hotel where you're being monitored 24-7, that is effectively going to end tourism because nobody wants to do that. Right, right, but but I don't think it's rational, right? I think it's based on the it's based on the bureaucratic incentives. Yeah, well, or maybe it's rational from like an economic sense. You know, like what I'd say is that you've got the tourism industry pushing heavily to reopen tourism, and they just have a lot more influence relative to the public scandal compared to immigrant employing industries pushing. Both cases, you do have some people that want it definitely because it's part of their business, but you. When you, if you ask normal Americans, what about reopening tourism? Well, I guess it's okay as long as there's some rules. What about immigration? Oh no, they could spread disease. <laughs> right. That's like, like what? And yeah, and then get me on the, you know, you've got the tourism industry, like they really need those tourists in. So yeah, it does feel like a kind of like Hansenism, right? It does feel like the kind of um, you you know people people acting as press secretary for their brain mm-hmm. or for their kind of like gut instincts rather than, you know, trying to give a rational justification of them. Well, while we're on that subject though, it is fun. You know, a fun topic is me trying to get Robin to be less conformist because he's just often nonconformist because he doesn't know what's expected. But on the other hand, there are many times when he's just told a rule and I see him following it. I'm like, Robin, you don't have to follow that rule. And he's like, how do I know which rules you know, I do and don't have to follow? He's like, I will tell you, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> so like you know, during COVID, we were both doing these unpaid uh, visiting positions at the University of Texas. And officially, in order to go and do this unpaid job for three weeks, you have to do the full battery of HR training. Mm-hmm. And I saw Robin there doing all the training online. I'm like, Robin, you don't have to do that. It's an unpaid job. You're only here for three weeks. And then he just had trouble believing me. And he's like, well, how do you know? And it's like, look, trust me, Robin. I just know what you can get away with, what you can't. You can totally get away. There's going to be no blowback from this. No way, no how. Just forget about it. And he went and conformed. And when I do talk to Robin, as I do at most of my lunches, he's my most regular person that I eat lunch with. He often does have some strangely convoluted version of how it might seem like there's no conformity enforcement, but one thing will lead to another and then they will crash you. And right, it's, it's like all, a status not always right? wrong, but still, I do like this is I, you know, when you're talking about the press secretary, I think the, you know, basically what the what's really speaking is the voice of evolution saying, don't do, you know, follow rules, obey, don't do things that are different from what you've been told to do. Try to just keep everybody happy, regardless of whether they are total strangers or your life depends on them. 
And then you start making up stories about how they could get back at you. And then you just realize, look, most of the time they just don't have any method of getting back at you. And like, it would just be so costly for them. And just remember there's a bunch of other people in the same boat as you, their safety in numbers. They aren't prepared to go and do a massive crackdown on a thousand people that are defying. And so they're not going to do anything. And then Robin will say, well, maybe they'll go and set an example of me. And it's like, yeah, well, show me the last time they did that. These people are generally just gutless cowards. They're just trying to go and get through their day. They themselves just want to go and be able to say, oh, I told people to follow the rules, so my job's done. <laughs> they don't care about the rules much themselves. Yeah, I would say that uh, if I were trying to steel mend this, it's weird because I, I think I agree with you on the kind of HR case, right? But... I mean, I, I can tr- I can try to steal man Robin's point, which is that a lot of these things are kind of driven by uh, kind of status games. They are tr- driven by you know people's sentiment, uh, especially people in these kind of like persecutory HR roles. Mm-hmm. You know that that many in many cases they just have you know a feeling about someone, and that leads to you know um, kind of Me Too situations. It's all just sentiment. It's not, you know, based on evidence at all. It's just kind of like arbitrary. Even there, like you can pay attention and say, all right, look, sometimes the HR people are deadly serious, right? You know, they are very serious about any kind of sexual harassment allegation, for example. On the other hand, sometimes they're just going and sending you an email so they can say they sent you an email. And, and yeah, many such and, cases. And, 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 you know, what's that going to be? You know, that's going to be things like, like, what is our official telework policy? What you know, like, like you're supposed to go and sign in on a digital sheet in order to indicate that you're teleworking each day, or, or, or better yet, you know, every hour on the hour you're supposed to go and click a box about whether or not you're in the office or not. <laughs> And that's the kind of thing. It's like no, like oh, nobody's going to do it, and you always got plausible deniability. So that's a rule you don't have to follow. And if you say like I'm confused about which ones I do and don't have to follow, all right, well, talk to other people who aren't so confused, or just look around and say, has anyone ever been punished for this ever? Or if you just right, get, or right. I mean, you can even get a good idea for how strict the punishment is just by giving a hypothetical and seeing how emotional people get. Like if you said, well. Suppose I went and just started asking Julie out every day and people were just like, don't ask Julie out. And like, I'm just saying, so that. don't even talk about the hypothetical. It's a, even to think the hypothetical is, is dangerous. And that's what, all right, I think this is one where the rules actually are enforced. On the other hand, it's like, yeah, what would happen if I just forgot to go and click the box saying I'm teleworking on a day? And it's like, yeah, yeah I don't know. Probably you should do it the next time, maybe. And just by looking at people's reactions, you know how intense they feel. And once you know how intense they feel, you know how likely it is that there will be a harsh punishment. Right. Yeah, I do think there is a kind of, you know, there is a kind of homogeneity here, right? Most people do react in kind of the same way to these things. It's not like... I I, I can't think of... Psychologically normal people, neurotypicals react in, in the same way. Uh, Robin is going to be the first pe- people to tell you, yeah, he's not neurotypical. Uh, there's a lot of debate about whether I am or not <laughs> among people. So, you know, like if you only read me and then I think almost people only read me saying like total Aspie. But when I ask people to know me in real life, there's a lot of argument. And some friends who know, know me for a year say, yeah, obviously, and others say, obviously not. And they're like, yeah, I don't really know what I am. 
Yeah, I think that a lot of autism diagnoses kind of rely on people not having like evidently learnable skills. Like I think of someone myself as someone who has that disposition, but just over time mm-hmm. has kind of learned the obvious things you do to be social. Yeah, but, so I mean, like, Tyler I- Cowen self-diagnoses as highly autistic, or really. He also he has this weird theory that it's totally binary and either you are or you aren't. <laughs> right? Which I'm like, oh, interesting. What? That's crazy. But anyway, um, so he self. Wait, wait. I want to hear more about this. That's that's very interesting to me. Yeah. So Tyler self-diagnoses as being definitely absolutely autistic, but at the same time, also he's just put a lot of effort into figuring out what the right thing to do and say is in different situations, which allows him to run a major organization and do interviews with people all over the world and. Um, basically, you know, uh, be a very, you know, be a dominant social, per- social personality in terms of this, it's binary. You've never given me any argument. It's just, it's binary, Brian. <laughs> and I say, so am I or am I? And he's just like, very <laughs> fact, you even ask you that's so ridiculous. So, <laughs> like, I am, you know, that, that's the answer. You are, you are. Uh, me, Tyler Robin, according to Tyler, all oh, you know, are autism equals one. <laughs> and okay, other okay. possibilities equals zero. And that's nothing, you know, not, there's nothing else. Okay. Next time Tyler is on this podcast, <laughs> I know what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that still seems. Yeah, I mean, I definitely like, don't believe it. There are definitely people I know. Personality trait that's binary. <laughs> <laughs> there are definitely people I know who are like 10 times more autistic than like other people who I also consider autistic. I think Tyre will say that to say that is to have accepted the false premises of neurotypicals that neurodivergent people can't be successful. Something like that. So, no, but in many so, cases, the more, the more autistic ones are like, in some cases are more successful, in some cases not, right? Well, in that case, <laughs> like I think there's a there, there's a difference between people who like, yeah, there, there's like, okay, let's maybe make an easier point. There's at least three. There's at least three classes. Okay, there's like people. There's like normies who kind of like intuit social interaction. There's people I think like you or I who do not intuit social interaction, but can kind of learn from enough observation and basically using the scientific method. And then there's people who like refuse to even do that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I definitely know those people. I know all, all three. I mean, so I mean, what, what's striking to me is that when I was in high school, I actually read Dale Carnegie's how to win friends and influence people for the first time. And when I read it, my reaction was, this is all obviously true. And then I didn't change my behavior at all because, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I just didn't want to, I was just being stubborn. Now, do most people figure this out? I mean, here's something that, that is pretty striking. Okay, wait, wait, wait. You have to finish the story. Yeah, so how yeah. did you end up changing your behavior? Uh, what happened was that I, I matured and noticed that there were things that I wanted that would require me to go and win people over. And I just gradually reinvented the wheel of Dale Carnegie. And it was only when I was in my late 40s that I reread the book and said, wow, why did I have to reinvent the wheel? Why didn't I just listen the first time? Now that book is not perfect and it's got a bunch of other weird things in it, but still it tells you a lot of very useful tips for how to improve your interaction with other people. Right, right.
right? I mean, you know, so this does remind me, I think that there are, you know, two ways of looking at nonconformism, you know, conformism. So, so for the normie, their problem is that they just in, at, at a very emotional level want to conform regardless of whether or not it is in fact helpful for them. And for them, I think, yeah, this nonconformism book is here to tell you just try to be a little bit not more nonconformist, be more strategic, be aware of the, the, the case that you can get some very large gains by doing something that most people won't do. Even at the level of just going and talking to strangers, right? And you know, normies have problems with this. Uh, so this is where their conformism is holding them back. You know, like you know, if you're a normie and you are, especially you're a guy, you're alone, you want a girlfriend, you can't get one. It's like, all right, you've just got to go and start talking to girls, and just try it. And just you know, like it's not, it's going to be really hard at first, but you can gradually build it up. But on the other hand, for people that are artistic. I don't think that most of them are conscious nonconformists. They just have a trouble figuring out what it is that people want. And for them, on the one hand, you can say some of your anxiety about, I don't know what people want, you can stop worrying about because they're total strangers. They really can't do anything to you. And basically take all the, the social anxiety that you're feeling based upon being neuro, neurodivergent and put it into how can I go and improve my relations with the people that really count in my life, with family, with friends, with coworkers. Right. Right. So, I mean, I do think that normies have more to gain from nonconformism, but it's not like people that are highly autistic intuitively are good at nonconforming. They fail to do so, but in a non-strategic way generally. And that's something that I also say is a mistake. You really want to nonconform strategically to be mindful of, am I like, if I make this one compromise with society, can my, I improve my life a lot? I mean, most notably to tie into one of my other big interests, education, where I say, look, education is one of the least tolerant hierarchies that exists. There's just a bunch of rules. Most of them you do have to follow. There's some right, very room. Victorian. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the way to end. Furthermore, it is our main rationing mechanism for good jobs. So most people, unless you have some incredible entrepreneurial attitude or fantastic people skills to get around these norms, you need to succeed in education in order to get the life you want for yourself. There are things you can do at the margin, like, can I go and find an easier teacher for this required class so I don't have to suffer as much? Yes, you can. And the world will never know that you got the easier teacher. But it is one where if you... Wait, is that a nonconformity thing? Or a part I think it's pretty socially accepted that people do that. Uh, yes, but it's one where you you might be worried that I need to go and just excel in all parts of education, never take the easy way out. It's like sometimes you can take the easy way out. I mean, like when I was homeschooling my kids, one of my major themes was how to successfully weasel out of stuff. For example, uh, normal students must do a full year of geometry. My position, the only reason to learn geometry is for the SAT. And the SAT has a very narrow range of geometry. So I only taught my kids five weeks of geometry. This is SAT geometry. It's all the geometry you ever need to know. Math you need to know, but geometry, not so much. On the other hand, when we got to foreign language, I said, hey, you just can't weasel out of this. You got to have a foreign language for college application. And they're not going to take my word for it that, you're, that you can speak Spanish. So you're going to have to go and do well on a standardized test, which means you're actually going to have to get good. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, I, I'm sort of sad. I kind of liked... Uh... 
it, it, it's weird because I've always been like adjacent to the to the math Olympiad circles. I've always thought they were like kind of lame compared to the computer science ones. But the geometry, so which the geometry the, was the nice. math. No, the math what? So, so there's like a math Olympiad. Oh, math Olympiad. Then, yeah. Yeah. And then there's like a computer science Olympiad. And um, the math Olympiad has stuff like algebra, <laughs> which is just like kind of bashing a few, like a few of the same equations and formulas. Um, I'm very sick of it. But uh, the, the geometry is nice. I'm sure this will be a polarizing opinion upon, among people who listen to this podcast. But um, it, it is kind of true that geometry is not that useful in real life. Yeah, I mean, it's not um, even it might be like the least math. useful branch of math now. I mean, what's striking so geometry doesn't come up much later in math, even. Um, yeah. So, you know, like when you when you do analytic geometry, it's almost starting from scratch. It's a very different kind of math. You're no longer proving theorems about triangles. I don't think like you haven't yeah, you proved like anything about congruent triangles outside of geometry mean. or the SAT. Even the SAT, I don't think you have to prove. Yeah, there's no there's no proofs on the SAT or basically none. Yeah, yeah, you're just doing computation. It is it is kind of sad. It is, um, but you know, I have to bring myself to admit this. It is it is indeed not that useful. Um, wait, how 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 high are the foreign language requirements for college in in the U.S.? Great question. So the answer is, if you do it the normal way, rock bottom. The normal way is you just go and take three, four, or five years of courses where the standards are so low and you just go and do some exercises out of textbook and you emerge barely able to do anything. Uh, however, the standards for doing an advanced placement language test are medium. They're medium. Most people that do four years or five years even of middle school and high school Spanish would be lucky to pull out a two on AP Spanish, for example. Really? Okay. Yes. That's interesting. Um, now, well, like if you know the language, you might say like, how can that be? And the answer is that they like, they just barely expect people to learn anything except in the, you know, the AP version. That's one where they raise the standards. So um, now it's striking for like university of California system, actually both the UC and the Cal state systems, Three years foreign language required, but only coursework. No, no standardized tests required. Uh, but anyway, for homeschoolers, though, just saying, oh, we studied for three years, I think that's going to get you nowhere. Even if you do get into college, they'll still make you go and do a full sequence once you're in college. So I told my sons, let's do, do it now. And then uh, I had them do intensive prep and they began by the, you know, they actually resisting at first and resenting it. But then once they got good, they started to enjoy it. So they then did do, uh, they got fives in AP Spanish. Um, then I had them doing college level coursework um, at George Mason. Plus I also got them a tutor, but most of it was that after a few months, they just started only speaking Spanish to each other. So those standards are high. But let me put it this way. So my sons are not Spanish majors at Vanderbilt, but they've done some classes. There are classes with a bunch of Spanish majors, even there. A Ivy Plus university will graduate a major in a foreign language who is clearly not fluent in the language, not even close. They, you know, they could order in a restaurant. They could not do even a basic job. And on the other hand, within about 30 seconds, everyone in the room can tell that my sons are the best Spanish speakers. It's that objective where you, you know, like, it's like, look, I don't speak it, but I'm, I'm, I can know someone who does. 
just listen to the pronunciation, just listen to the fluidity with which they speak, how they're not going and saying, oh, yo, hablo. <laughs> I mean, incidentally, so my Spanish is right now at a lifetime peak. I had three years of terrible Spanish in high school. I could barely do anything at the end. But based upon just making some lame attempts to talk to my kids in Spanish, plus what, you know, putting Spanish subtitles on everything we watch, you know, definitely my Spanish subtitle reading is pretty good now. Hmm, that, that, yeah, the other, hilarious, the other hilarious thing is an American who can speak two okay sentences of any foreign language, the whole world thinks you speak the language. I was in Guatemala and I was saying, Necesitamos intentar hablar español siempre. And people are like, oh my God, I didn't know Brian could speak Spanish. <laughs> So I speak, I, I speak no Spanish. I have no idea what that is. We always need to try to speak Spanish. That's what I said. Yeah, I remember um, in high school. So, so I, I did high school in Canada. And uh, my For mother French. said, yeah, yeah. Said, you know, all, uh, you know, like a true Canadian citizen. They won't consider you a true Canadian citizen unless you speak fluent French. Um, if, if you know many Canadians, um, uh, I do. So I, I see that, I see that's a, a joke. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, my family took it very seriously, and I took it very seriously. Yeah, so like Alex Tabarrok, so, he did I think thirteen years of required French in Canadian schools, and he can't do anything. Wait, did Alex? Alex grew up in Canada. Oh, Alex is. Alex was voted most likely to become an American in his Canadian high school. <laughs> that's that's amazing. That's I think amazing. his dad was a professor at the University of Toronto, if I remember correctly. So you know, his dad was an was an Iranian immigrant. Uh, I think his mom's British, but yeah, no, he's born and bred in Canada. I did not know that at all. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> As they say in Canadian bacon, Canadians they walk among us. Yeah. It's it, it's very funny because <laughs> I don't know. I've never heard anyone call like ham bacon in canada like like bacon in canada is just the same as bacon in america but there's this like idea of like canadian bacon it's just it's just not true <laughs> um okay we're, we're we're pretty far off the far off the uh original point so let's 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 bring things back cool. to um let's bring th things back to some of the essays uh we talked on a previous episode about kind of giving libertarians a friendlier face. You also write about this here. Um, I think like one of the problems thinking about it more and knowing more libertarians is, uh, and once again, I kind of include myself as like one of the people with this incentive is that there, there's, there's an appeal to the kind of, pessimism right there there's an appeal to the kind of bluntness or i i mean like you're not entirely against bluntness but a kind of like crude like unemotional like stating of the facts i think that there there is actually like a lot of there's a lot of appeal to that in like economist circles right first of all would you would you agree that that's true hmm. yes although i'd say that that would be an improvement over a lot of what i see which is just deliberately antagonizing people <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, say more about that. Like, like, what do you think is the difference? I think that there are, especially on the internet, a lot of libertarians who 
just go out of their way to make enemies and say, look, you know, like, you know we're for freedom and all of you, all, all of you status can suck it. It's like, all right. Uh, you know, are you winning over the people who can suck it? I don't think so. Are you winning over people that don't know much about it? Probably not. So that's a case where you're just going out of your way to make enemies. And I think this is more common, in fact, than just calmly stating the facts. You know, calmly stating the facts is one of the better things that libertarians have going for them. Big improvement. I would say that's, I would, my view is that probably puts you above the median just to calmly go and describe things. And then the next level is doing it with a smile, which is where a lot of libertarians do have trouble. Uh, you know, you know, like you learn politics from other people. Almost everyone who's into politics may, goes out of their way to do it uh, with cruelty. Um, let's see. I think this is actually in another one of the books. I think I think this is actually in the, in the I'm trying to remember. It might be in the previous one. Voters, yeah, the, the voters is mad scientists, yes. right? Politics, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, politics is cruelty. Um, if you look at so like if you are actually someone an artist that, uh, that draws anatomically accurate human faces, what you'll discover or you can see in Scott McCloud's book, Understanding Comics, is that the emotion that we call cruelty actually is just a simple linear combination of two primary emotions, namely happiness and anger. <laughs> so if you just look at what a happy face looks like and the muscles that you're using there, look at what an angry face looks like, and then you just superimpose those two things there and to say what emotion is now expressed, you will immediately look at that and say it shows cruelty. This is, and then I have a piece saying politics is cruelty. In politics, normally what people have is not being calm about things, not just stating the facts. Instead, you are combining some kind of happiness about, oh, we could get our way with anger, antipathy, hatred of the enemy. I mentioned there's this Elizabeth Warren poster back from 2020 that says, dream big, fight hard. Dream big is the joy, fight hard is the anger. But if you just listen to most political speeches, you don't just say, oh, we're going to go and make everything great. You all say, and those who will stop us will rue the day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, anyone, you know, the malefactors of great wealth. You don't do the applause political- lines are always, you know, lock her up, right? Yeah. Or, you yeah. know, tax the rich or so. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, you, you just, so this is something that's very standard in politics. It clearly works for politicians themselves to do it. But, if you want to go and spread your ideas to a broader audience and you're not going to be someone who actually is a senator or whatever, then like the usual rule of make people like you so they listen to you is true. Yeah. But I think maybe a challenge to this is that like Elizabeth Warren lost, right? Like Joe (laughs) Biden is kind of at least relatively a lot, kind of happier of a person, right? I mean, I don't know him personally, but like, that's just the aesthetic that he gives off, I think. Yeah. I mean, so I'm not saying that it's always the cruelest politician who wins. That would be really bad. I'm saying that almost all political rhetoric uses a high degree of cruelty. In terms of what determines the winners, then you've got to go and put on a bunch of other things. I mean, honestly, for Biden, a huge part of it was just, he was the previous vice president, which made him the focal candidate. And also he had a, it was, you know, he was very strong in the black vote because it looked like black Democrats really liked the way that he loyally served Obama for eight years. And that counted for a, a lot in their book. Right. So so the kind of happiness differential wasn't really a factor. It was yeah, well, the cruelty is the cruelty difference. Yeah, the, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I would say she came off as more cruel, although you know, Biden, obviously, if you just listen to the speeches like, wow, it's 
there's there's plenty of anger that he's going to heap on his enemies and doubters and naysayers. Like what politician doesn't? Usually, probably the closest to it might be, even be Reagan, who was famously chipper. Although even there, you got the evil empire speech, that kind of stuff. Right, right. He 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 had more kind of he had more cruelty towards the Soviet Union. Maybe he deserved more cruelty, right, yep. than than domestic. Uh, rivals. Yeah, you know, so Hugh had a light touch. Uh, he had the famous line of the debate with Carter, like, there he goes again. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's, it's like, wow, that's some delivery, man. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Why, why hasn't either, you know, conservatism or libertarianism produced another Reagan? Hmm. I mean, you just as well say, why haven't the Democrats got themselves another Obama? This, that level of charisma is just very sure. rare. It's and it, I mean, it's a special combination, and people have those skills. There's so many things they could succeed in potentially. So you know, you look at Reagan's career. He was an actor. He was the head of a labor union before he got into politics. So I would say that it's it's hard. I mean, I mean, I mean, actually, I would say that a lot of people Trump is the next Reagan. He's this. He's someone who has this unique personality that inspires fanatical love among tens of millions of people, you might, I mean, you might say, yeah, but Reagan's personality is good and Trump's is bad. Like, not in the eyes of a lot of people. There's a lot of people who think Trump <laughs> is a great personality. And like, that guy, they like his, yeah, they like him. So I know. I feel like a lot of Trump voters, they, they, they would acknowledge that, you know, actually, no, Trump, Trump kind of is happy in his, his own way, right? So maybe you're right. Yeah, maybe you're right. I mean, I guess many people consider him funny. Um, I mean, like my honest reaction has to be that my assessment of people's personalities is just abnormal. I always had an intense dislike for Bill Clinton, for example. I think he's just so sleazy, used car salesman. And then I remember seeing a woman who had gone to jail for Bill Clinton because she was, said she she was held in contempt of court for refusing to testify against him. Once she was released, she got out. And then I think this was on the old Daily Show. Maybe it was John Stewart, but anyway, he said, "Like, why do you think some people don't like Bill Clinton?" And this woman just said, "Yeah, I've thought about this a lot. It's so hard to understand how anyone could dislike Bill Clinton." He says, "But you know how there's some people in high school who don't like the quarterback of the football team?" And my reaction was, "Yes, I hated that guy." <laughs> like, well, these right, super right. sick individuals also don't like Bill Clinton. I'm like, wow. All right, I just learned something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, um, I don't know, but like, it, it's, it's weird because Trump is sort of the same aesthetic, right? And, and it, probably those people would definitely hate Trump. I don't know. The, the kind of like Bill Clinton to Trump voter, that, that, that's like a journey, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would it think really of, exist. I mean, I would think of Trump as not so much the quarterback as, hmm, what would he be? You know, like. Like more like the head of the debate team or something like that. <laughs> but that guy probably wouldn't be that popular, so maybe it's not a good analogy. Yeah, no, no. Trump is definitely a much more visceral person. Maybe, than the maybe head more of the like maybe team, more right? like he's the, no Ben Shapiro. Maybe more like the class clown, actually, is where he is. So he just sits there thumbing his nose at the teacher and people like the way that he just like acts real snotty to authorities. Yeah, I think I'm gonna go that one. You know, Donald Trump is sort of like the ultimate class clown, and that's why people like him. 
Yeah, that, 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 I think I agree with that. Yeah, a lot and if you say like, you know, that guy's a jackass. Well, in your eyes, he's a jackass. But to the people that don't like the teacher, that jackass is a hero. Speaking right. truth to power. How much of it is kind of creating movements around personalities underrated or overrated? Hmm. I guess in terms of success, I'd have to say that it's underrated because it's hard to find any really successful movement that doesn't have some highly magnetic leader. I was going to say charismatic, but that's not quite the right word. Well, you know, Stalin wasn't, isn't really charismatic. If you go and look at his speeches, he's real boring, but there's something magnetic about the guy that really sucked people in. Uh, in terms of actually making the world better, then I'd say it's pretty much just a crapshoot. Maybe a view that's going to make the world better happens to get a really great leader who's going to galvanize support. And maybe it's going to be some terrible person that's going to galvanize support for a terrible thing. Uh, you just have to really cross your fingers that it'll be the right person for the right idea instead of the right person for the wrong idea. Yeah, yeah. But but like a lot of people, a lot of libertarians actually complain about, you know, the kind of like philosophical nationalism movement as like you know jumping on the trump bandwagon and trying to rationalize you know uh trump voters when really they just thought trump was kind of a cool guy uh my my response to that often is like but like wouldn't it have been cool if you guys did that <laughs> like yeah i mean of course there was an attempt to do it with ron paul uh, you can see this right. now yeah, with you know, Javier Millet in, in Argentina. That guy's got some kind of personal magnetism off the charts. Um, I mean, right now I'm actually working on a piece for the New York Times trying to figure out what's going to happen. The more I, the more I read, the more confused I am. So, <laughs> Yeah, maybe you won't brush up on your Spanish. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's also one where like, well, shouldn't they really get someone who's been studying Argentina their whole lives and is fluent in Spanish? Like, well, they asked me, so I'm just going to do the best job that I can on this. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Yeah, what, what, give us a preview. What's uh, what's going to happen in Argentina? Hmm. Well, what we can see already is that there has been a radical whittling down of the radical reform. It started with him saying that back in October he was going to cut government spending as a share of GDP by 14 percentage points. A month later, it was down to five, although he still kept saying the public sector will bear all the burden. And the actual plan now is cut spending as a share of GDP by 3% and raise taxes as a share of GDP by 2%. So I'd say that at least in terms of the budgetary policies, he's now well within the normal range of what people dealing with fiscal crisis do. It's nothing surprising. Uh, in terms of whether he will shock doctrine this, which is the hope, right? The hope is the, I mean, just to back up, you probably heard of Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, where she claims that there's a giant neoliberal slash libertarian Freemanite conspiracy to take advantage of every financial crisis in every wonderful leftist country to turn them into radical libertarian enclaves. Uh, but any, anyway, so. Kind of vague yeah, part of this. Yeah, that, so, you know, that's her story is you, know, you wait for disaster to strike and then you ram a bunch of free market policies down the, the, the throats of a desperate, confused country. Um, I think in general, not true, but that is my hope is what Millet will do in Argentina is that there'll be this budgetary stuff, but he also has two big omnibus policy or be you know, omnibus. Uh, well, let's see, let me actually technically, technically speaking. So I've been learning how Argentinian legislation works. So 
He's got one emergency bill where if he can get away with calling all this stuff a part of the emergency bill, then it automatically takes effect unless both houses of the Argentinian Congress overturn it. So this is one where uh, it essentially changes the default. If you say it's an emergency, then you, it happens automatically unless both houses are against you. Uh, so he's got that. That's got a bit under 400 specific measures with 30 main kinds of deregulation. Even there, those de- these emergency deregulations are, to my mind, very mild. There's things like saying that Argentinian labor laws, where currently there's a three-month probationary period where they don't kick in, uh, now won't kick in for eight months. The unions are acting like this is the return of slavery or something, that the labor protections take five months longer to kick in. Uh, then there is his omnibus law, this one is being introduced as normal legislation. This one's got like 600 plus different provisions with some definitely bigger things that are going to happen. Like the emergency thing, as far as I can figure out, just says that now it is possible to privatize some things, but the omnibus bill actually does privatize some things. So in the end, my guess is that he will manage to go and stabilize the Argentinian economy. He'll get inflation back down into the double digits. He'll get their budget deficit down. I say this is going to happen because it's happened a bunch of times before, and he's doing the normal stuff for that. As to whether how much he'll be able to go and really move Argentina in a free market direction, my guess is that he will move it something like 20% of the way towards Chile. So it's definitely a notable change, but it's not going to, in the end, you know, in the end, you won't be able to accomplish anything like making as free market as Chile is or was before the socialists took over again. Uh, but it won't be zero. Right. Right. And then my last forecast is no matter what he does, he's going to go down in standard history as a horrible monster. <laughs> and his policies will be written up as a total disaster even if the actual transitional costs are totally normal for this kind of thing. I mean, this is how shock therapy has been written up for the Eastern Bloc. Actually, it was ex- extremely effective, and yet, uh, and especially, you know, the countries that did it, that did the most, reform, uh, reformed the most, have done the best. The countries that reformed the least have done the worst. And yet still, Google shock therapy in the Eastern Bloc, and you'll get a bunch of stuff about how it was terrible. Right, right. I definitely think that, from my knowledge, at least, I think that shock therapy was definitely on net positive. Yeah. Do do people really disagree with that? Like, oh yeah, you know, people people point at mistakes on it, but people don't think it was like negative, right? No, I think that you. I think the usual view of shock therapy is that it was terrible, horrible, evil free market policies, and you know, like, you know definitely among journalists, among people, you know, among historians, for sure, among economists, I think there'll be more of an ideological split with left-wing economists saying, oh, they should have gone slower uh, you know, with you know, the human costs were too high. Um, and then more right-wing economists saying, uh, you know, like, well, probably was a good idea. Yeah, I hear like it should have gone slower, but I don't... Right. I mean, it was really striking. Say- so uh, Jeff Sachs, who on the one hand was the architect of Poland shock therapy, but on the other hand is definitely a very left-wing economist. And... Essentially, he doesn't seem he doesn't you know, like he he does not sit around claiming credit for what he did in Poland. He does doesn't apologize for it either. <laughs> I mean, if you see Poland today and how transformed it is, 
you'd think that Jeffrey Sachs would just be t- taking victory laps around the country the whole time. I think right, actually, right. it's the Polish miracle. It's... Yes, but the Poles themselves, I don't think, like Jeffrey Sachs. And huh. to say, like, it's thanks to this guy listening to him that you got what you got. Like, no, 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 it was terrible. Huh. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I've never been to Poland. Don't really know. Yeah, the... I've done three trips there in the last two there. years, so it's hmm. uh, on my mind more than usual. Right. Is the is the Polish miracle real? Is it like? Oh yeah. I mean, like, um, you know, it is shocking to see like how good Poland looks now. I mean, so it's by a sample. Warsaw is one of the most modern cities in the world now. It's just incredible to look at. I mean, as you're like, like thinking you're in Hong Kong, they've got the tallest city, or tallest building in the EU, but it's just like it's a glistening sci-fi looking city. Uh, the rest of Poland doesn't look as good as Warsaw, no doubt, but even there, like it's just overall looks quite good. Uh, you know, the worst the worst looking areas are rural areas. Compared to like U.S. rural areas, I'd still say Poland looks pretty good. Compared to really, yeah, West, wow. you know, like like, like the, the U.S. just has a bigger divide between well, mostly suburban and rural than Europe. So if you go to Germany, France, or Italy, the rural areas just look relatively good compared to uh, the U.S. It's like the ratio of how good like the suburbs of Germany or France look, uh, you know, so like the ratio of, sub- of, of suburban quality of life to rural quality of life in those countries, it looks better than in the U.S. Probably U.S. rural people still actually have higher consumption, but in terms of just looking at what they're, you know, the quality of their housing or just like the amount of garbage on their lawns, honestly, there's just, there's a big difference. So there's just more pride in the in rural towns that you'll see in Western Europe. Is that a cultural difference or is it a, is it actually? I think economic? it is like a lot of it really is cultural because you can actually see the divide between how good the rural homes look in former West Germany versus former East Germany still very notable where the former West Germany, you got the flower boxes, everything looks nice. East Germany, more likely that people just let their homes be, a, be look like a dump. I mean, not so much in the actual cities, but if you get to more remote areas of former East Germany, it's like, wow. Like they say, well, it looks this way because they're poor. It's like, do you need money to go and pick up your trash? <laughs> you don't. Right, right. Yeah. I think this, you know, so this cultural difference has been, gotten more mild over time. My most vivid memory is when I was first in former East Germany in the late 90s. And there, really, you just cross from the former West to the former East. And you're like, oh, my God, what happened? It looks terrible here. Huh. So, so much so before not, there was... not really the material possessions as just the, 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 the cultural aspect of do you take pride in your possessions or not. Right. Um, okay. I'm just going to be deciding if I want to do um... – religion first or if i want to do um kind of strategic strategic conformity first i I think like maybe this order makes sense okay like like what if you were giving like a single piece of advice to um someone who is like somewhat autistic but can kind of um you know use a scientific method to figure things out what's the what's the tip that people should have to be uh strategically conformist or you know straussian in some way Right. And besides the scientific method, I also highly recommended, recommend talking to more neurotypical people, asking them their opinion. It's, it's, a, it's like there's some people just know this intuitively, or I could use a scientific method. 
let's talk to the intuitors. <laughs> they, they sound like pretty good people uh, for you know, pretty good sources. Uh, so what I would say is <clears throat> like the main, you know, main thing to think about, like, like, so what will be the consequences if I don't do the normal thing? What will happen right. to me? How will people respond? And what kind of leverage do they have over you? Right? And this is where the distinction between the total stranger and the people that you have repeated interaction with is very important. So you can see, look, there's a lot of things where it really doesn't matter because it's only something that total strangers will notice and they don't really matter. Now, by the right. way, just as an ethicist, I don't recommend mistreating total strangers because you can get away with it. But I am saying, look, if you have thought about something, you have decided that it's the best course of action. The fact that total strangers disagree should not motivate you to do something otherwise. Right. So you know, being mindful of this, finding out what the consequences are. I mean, a lot of it is how about you just try like a small deviation and see what happens and then start turning the dial up. Don't go and do the most radically nonconformist thing first. Just start pushing your luck and see what happens. And then if you, know, you get blowback or a pushback, all right, well, I'll just retreat a little bit. But if you notice, hey, this, this is really just like fighting paper bag here. In that case, all right, I will go further. Uh, so that's a big part of it. Um, educational success as one of the most fungible ways that a nonconformist can get ahead in life. It's hard to, hard to underrate that. Um, hate to go and be the bearer of bad tidings, but educational success is one of the main ways that our society rations good jobs and other kinds of life success. So uh, if you are nonconformist and you don't like it, the question is, can I go and just put my conformity into this one thing while being mindful of ways that I could go and weasel out of some of the dumber stuff. And that way I can get the degree in hand that will go and give me a good life. You know, it's clear that there are a lot of people who are really successful in computer science. They are nonconformist generally, but they got their degrees. And if they didn't get their degrees, at minimum, they would have had to have been much better in order to get where they are. And I remember talking, right. I've talked to people who are in tech and they'll say, oh, we don't care about degrees anymore. We you know, like, like we hire people just for one winning contest or high school dropouts. And I say, okay, how many people at your, how many, how many programs you got? Like 2000. All right, great. Uh, so out of those 2000, how many do not have normal bachelor's degrees or higher? Uh, five. All right. Well, so you know, those five. I think people, that might be like overrepresentative <laughs> of like the people who are capable. Yeah. Right. In what, in what sense? Like, I, th I think that among the people who are capable, like probably like a few smaller percentage of those people have, or, or like there's fewer people, or like the, the, there's more hiring of people without college degrees than you would expect just from like drawing randomly from like the, the pool of capable people. Mm -hmm. Because I think that like most capable people are still in the older mindset. Like maybe they're like, you know, MIT dropouts or something, right? But those people are like successful enough. Most people, most of them like at least like get into college, right? Like you can think of like the Teal Fellowship as like maybe, you know, as maybe like exemplary of this. That's ultra rare. I would be shocked if the average MIT dropout was by any measure more successful than the average MIT graduate. I think that, you know, so you may meet a successful MIT dropout, but then to realize there's probably a bunch of guys who dropped out of MIT who just move back with their parents and don't do anything. That would be what I would think would be the typical profile of a math science genius who doesn't finish MIT is that they dream of this their whole life and then they fail at it and then they just sort of pull, 
pull inwards. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. So yeah, so educational success strongly uh, strongly recommend. Uh, you know, not antagonizing helpful family members important, <laughs> right? Is you know, you may say, well, they're not going to go and dump you, but just to go and get amicable relations with family members who normally just want to help you or will, if you push back, will will leave you alone. I more than anyone know that family members can be highly annoying. I've got a family that has been annoying in a lot of ways, but still I would say, yeah, they did a lot of stuff for me and you don't want to go and lose that. These are people that are in your corner, uh, even if they have some issues. And then friends and, you know, coworkers, of course, also really important. Um, and then, you know, like, you know, being proactively looking for friend groups that you are simpatico with. Uh, very good idea. Right. That actually touches, the family point touches on something pretty important, which is that, like, there, there are a lot of social conservatives who are nostalgic for a kind of, for an era with, more of what they would call social fabric, right? Yeah. More, more either familial or religious or other community connections of people basically like interfering with each other's lives. And this is something that, that I've kind of gone both ways on because I think that like on one hand, that is the kind of best way to have kind of any fo- some form of coercion, right? It's better than, you know, it's definitely better than doing it through the government's. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, like it, it does sort of empower the worst people, like the most annoying, you know, yeah. kind of the same not, people not, who not, are not, very not enthusiastic about mask rules today. Yeah. yeah, not like Hitler, but uh, annoying people. Yeah. I mean, here I think a lot about this graphic novel by Will Eisner called The Name of the Game. And this is one where it's basically the saga of a well-to-do Jewish family in the tri-state area. And it runs from like, I think it's like 1880 up till like the 1960s. So there's, there's a multi-generational story. And in it, you do see a lot of the things that feminists would talk about, like women trapped in these horrible marriages, these awful jerks. But what's cool about the book is you also see the unhappy men in traditional societies. You see the guy who's a decent guy, but his wife just married him for his money and she doesn't like him. And they're sort of stuck. Yeah, I think it's certainly more like women um, kind of perpetrators. Um, A friend of mine uh, who is like uh, a girl who is very successful in uh, in math had or or like still has this theory to my knowledge of the, the idea that like the main problem with like women who are intelligent especially like technically intelligent the main problem they face is from other women mm-hmm. like that, that 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 kind of social hierarchy is just much less meritocratic mm-hmm. and like basically if you're like a high iq especially like a kind of like uh high math ability girl like a te- like a teenage girl you just don't get the same kind of reinforcement uh you do from uh you do as a guy not because like the guys treat you worse or like more often like the guys will treat you better than like other women will treat you. Yeah. So in one of the earlier books of essays, uh, don't be a feminist. I have some advice from my daughter and one of them is never be afraid to play the, I'm not one of those feminist cards. Guys actually really like it. It makes them feel comfortable. Guys normally are, especially today are very nervous around women worried about saying the wrong thing. If you credibly signal, I'm, 
don't worry, I'm, I'm, I'm another human being. I'm not here to go and jump on you for any little transgression that one can, one, that one can conjure out of the situation. Then you make friends and friends help you. So yeah, I mean, I can see that high-performing women, especially with a STEM background, that other women might not be very nice to them. And my advice to them is, yeah, well, how about make a bunch of male friends and they're more likely to be helpful to you anyway. Right. Um, so, so going back to the original point, right, you have this, um, sorry, yeah, um, going back to the original point, you have this basically, like, previous social norm of kind of more uh, either familial or kind of social interference, um, and this is this is something that's often advocated for by social conservatives, um, especially, like, religious conservatives, mm-hmm. And I think you write um, that that you used to be a lot more um, opposed to religion, a lot more opposed to social con- uh, conservatives, and now you think it's like mostly availability bias, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I'd say think of it more as a sampling error because so, so I was raised Catholic and I was forced to go to church until I was sixteen, and my mom really went and made a big deal out of it, and I just thought it was false. And didn't want to go along with it. But I also had a lot of resentment because I had the feeling that this was going to be the rest of my life. And it just took me quite a few years to realize that once you leave home and you're 18, religious people almost always leave you alone if you leave them alone. I mean, the contrast with wokeness is overwhelming, where if you just want to go and live your life and with no attention to wokeness, you can't. It just comes to you. Like they, it will be like definitely in the media, but in real life, people will just start going and giving you woke sermons. On the other hand, the amount of time that your number of times, the frequency with which you'll get Christian sermons out of the blue on the internet, right? Much less in real life. You know, how often it is the person will come up to you and say, "Have you have you accepted Jesus as your personal savior?" Compared to, "Oh, isn't that racist?" So it's night and day. You know, religious people in modern societies are hunkered down. They are just not very pushy anymore. I mean, like, it's almost hard to believe how unpushy they are. I even think about this one local church where they have a, on their sign, it says, inactive Catholics rediscover your faith. It's like, talk about a soft sell. It's like, if you already are Catholic and if you're not really doing much with it, come by and we can talk about being Catholic again. It's like, wow, that's, it's really oppressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the the modern the emphasis on modern, I think is mm-hmm. yeah. You're you're definitely right about that. I mean, even then, uh, you know, on the topic of crusades, maybe this isn't so bipartisan. But Richard Hanania uh, talks about you know he he makes the case that like maybe religious conservatives will end up being the main opposition to stuff like embryo selection or other kind of. Uh, technologies that's actually necessary to increase the birth rate and they're coming from a kind of religious perspective um you know first of all do you think that that's actually the case i mean i don't think that he thinks that it's actually the case it's more of just a risk probably yes that for those specific technologies the main thing is they just don't have that much energy something like they were able to go and get through the pro-life stuff. Yeah, I mean, they uh, had enough yeah. energy yes. to, you know, win the Supreme right. Court battle, right? That's a lot of yeah. energy. Uh, so, 
I mean, like, here's the thing, like in terms of being able to go and actually get big rallies of people, I don't think, I think they've done not, not nearly so well. Um, so, you know, like, you know, there's, there's definitely, you know, I mean, I would say like they've done better than I would have expected 10 years ago. Uh, but in terms of adding on additional things to get worked up over, see the main issue with them is just status quo bias, legalizing something that's currently illegal, then they stand in the way very effectively. But once you can get it out, then it's very hard for them to turn it back, especially because a lot of social conservatives will do in vitro fertilization, for example. These are people who want kids. And if you're infertile, you can either say, God doesn't want me to, be, to have kids. Or you could say, oh, maybe he does. Maybe he created this technology just to go and do this. I think out of volunteers to carry other people's babies, a lot of the volunteers actually do it on Christian grounds. So it's a different perspective rather than saying this is awful to say this is a great gift that I can give to an infertile couple. Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I guess it is sort of availability bias in that it's like kind of the very online, like... Right, and also uh, we're, we're, it, we're it, it maybe the, is the Catholics. It is the it is the very online Catholics. Yeah. So, you know, relig- you know, U.S. religion for a long time, the U.S. was an out was an outlier in terms of secularization, but it's no longer an outlier. Religion has cra- religiosity has crashed in the last twenty years, and it is a bipartisan crash. Republicans are attending church less as uh, less too. So, I mean, I would just say that in a way, you might think of a lot of this as sort of the last gasp of social conservatism. Um, so, I mean, I also think that the social views of the left have gotten so weird in so many ways that just by pushing back against those, social conservatives aren't even wrong anymore. So, yeah, yeah, like, like that's the... like the like the idea that like twenty years ago there'd be a serious debate about is it a good idea for minors with gender dysphoria to get surgeries? I mean, it's like weird. Like they're not allowed to drink. They're going to do they're going to do elective amputations. <laughs> you know, at minimum, like you say, like well, maybe like like you know, should it legally be up to them and their guardians? All right. So ultimately, I still tend to think that. But like, is it a good idea to be encouraging this? It's like that seems pretty crazy. I mean, honestly, it is also the level of well, if they wanted if they wanted to have sex with their parents when they're minors, would you allow that? No. Well. Which is worse, doing elective amputations or having some voluntary sex? It's like, hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I definitely, I think, I think the amputations are worse. Yeah, when it's minors, I definitely think it's, you know, it's, yeah, it, yeah, so it's, 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 it's something very A lot very of the left can be very people. self-righteous about how it's super important for minors to do this. It's like, wow. Yeah, I, that I, I, I think, ex- like. I didn't expect to end up in this world. It's weird. Yeah, the focus on minors, that's very, um, like, the left, the left wing, fo- I can understand why, like, the right would want to focus on, on minors, but, like, the kind of, the, the, the willingness of the left to kind of, like, go along with this game instead of saying, like, oh, we're focused on, you know, giving uh, adults, you know, quote-unquote rights. Um, yeah, or how about, seems like we're, very we're strategy. Being, being understanding and nice to people. <laughs> no but like yeah. if they were understanding yeah. Yeah. then they would you know realize that it's much more sensitive when it comes to children mm-hmm. and yes but you know so you know they can say, like well, i, I yeah. kind of like don't understand the i really don't understand the left-wing theory of mind when it comes to this just in terms of focus is it just like negative polarization is that what this is i think you know, it's a ton of that i think another big part of it is actually that 
there is part of the left that just wants to work on LGBT stuff. And once they got everything that they'd ever asked for, then they had to move on to something else. And it was the T. Yeah, but, but aren't there still, like, some conservative states that, like, ha- have some restrictions on uh, adults doing it? Like, hey, can't they be, like, can't they focus on that? I feel like it'd be more yeah. politically successful. Yeah, so, you know, so Matt Walsh, who did the What is a Woman documentary, he definitely just wants to ban it for everybody and you know, we put people in jail and everything else. So it's not like this is a rare position. But in terms of what he talks about all the time, yeah, it's going to be kids and yeah, like I, I get the right focusing on kids. I, I just don't understand why like the left is so focused on kids. Like, well, I mean, I think it does speak to the question of will religious conservatives manage to do a whole bunch of bad things? And this is one like, look, they're having a big struggle just to go and do this one very marginal thing that has great popularity. So I'm just not that worried they're going to accomplish anything else that is really unpopular. Even in the states where they have, uh, where they now have very strict restrictions on abortion. A lot of that came where they vote. They voted as trigger laws, where it's like, well, this law won't take effect, and there because of the Supreme Court, and therefore it's easier to get the votes. And then once, yeah, once and, and then after that, then they would have to get both houses and the governor to do the opposite thing. So it was a very clever thing where they basically got people to vote for something that was electorally bad for them on the ground that could be on the grounds of, well, this will probably never even be an issue. We go and we just give the religious conservatives, we throw them a bone. But then it's like, oh my God, actually uh Supreme Court did overturn Roe v. Wade. So now this stuff really is coming into effect. A lot harder to go and do it from scratch. Yeah, that that to me was very surprising. That like so many people voted for 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 these laws and just thought, you know, like it'll never happen. Nothing ever happens. History is done. Yeah. I mean, obviously, like, obviously it's a very... T- no, that's not what Fukuyama meant, but it's still funny. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, it's a very tiny share of religious, of, you know, of, of anti-abortion people philosophically who actually regard a an embryo as being morally the same importance as a baby, right? And you've got hypotheticals where, like, you can either go and save a thousand fertilized embryos or one baby. Which one do you save? All right, so that I consider to be a very powerful thought experiment showing they don't really take this seriously except for a few fanatics. On the other hand, the one of, is it okay to abort a baby one minute before he would otherwise be born healthy? That's my thought experiment for the other side. I, mean, I think the reasonable view is you know, a, a unborn child has some intermediate moral status, which is rising in importance as they, as they mature, and you know, but you know, it's not zero at uh, you know even you know, even at conception but on the other hand it's nowhere close to that of an actual human baby uh who that has been born so but you know this view is unpopular with almost everybody for obvious reasons but all not is it born. that's that's like the median american view right so here's the thing is it like i think that like it's pretty bimodal though between like an abortion should be allowed for any is not only should be allowed but it's okay for any reason and it's murder at conception and then it's really, I mean, I would say that there is a implicit reaction that's held by almost everyone of, which is mine, but in terms of coming out and saying it, that's what I think is nonconformist to say that I think that a, uh, you know, I think that an embryo has, has you know, some notable moral worth greater than zero, but a lot less than a born human infinite. And that's where I think you are antagonizing both sides quite a bit. Cause like, what do you mean? That it's, it's, it's legal and rare, right? Like that's, yeah. that's the, I think a lot of people still believe that. So there's that slogan, but then it's like, well, why do you want it to be rare if you don't think that it's bad? 
Well, it's like slightly bad, right? That's the yes, thing. Yes, yes. Like, I do think that's the median American position is that it's slightly bad. You shouldn't ban it in all circumstances. All right, all right. All right you know, like, here's a fun challenge. Let's go and find, you know, like search all of Google and just try to find the, the, the quote, abortion is slightly bad. <laughs> I think you're going to, there's not going to be a lot of hits for that. <laughs> okay, let's go. Abortion is slightly, slightly bad. bad. Okay. You know, in, quotes. Listen, in quotes. What do we get for that? Uh, looks like there are not many great matches for your search. <laughs> okay. Like um, the first one says, um, okay, the first one is uh, National Review. Um, abortion is slightly bad for his confirmation trans- uh, yeah, chances. Yeah, okay, so it's not even relevant. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. This is like the, the one like actual, uh-huh. the, the one like yeah. relevant thing. Yeah, so it, it just does give you a view of just the sheer intellectual wasteland that all of Google does not contain anyone who just said what I would say is the obvious position. You know, you know what I'm going to try to do. All right, uh, trying to get, get going to try to get this podcast transcript to be the number one result. <laughs> Her abortion is slightly bad. We're going to beat <laughs> National Review. <laughs> I, I think we can do it, Brian. <laughs> yeah yeah not a not, it's a very small pond um before uh before you go uh all right, all right, all right, all right you, how about try abortion is moderately bad abortion okay do we get any hits for that let's see no results for abortion is moderately bad wow all right that's cool. <laughs> I mean, it's a cool Amazing. reflection of an uncool fact about how poor people's moral reasoning is. Yeah, you know, we were going to win this by default now. This is... <laughs> we will be the first results for abortion is moderately bad, in quotes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So so you, you say, and I think I've, I've heard you say this before... Um, so the, yeah, it was a Tyler Cowen interview that I was also I was also re-listening to. I remember that was a good interview. Um, but you say uh, you say uh, no paper is that good. Um, that like no paper should kind of like make a dif- no or like not should, but like no no paper like practically manages to make a definitive case on its own, right? At least in social right. science. Yeah, I mean the background of this is Noah Smith is a challenge where he said. Look, if you, you know, don't tell me there's a vast empirical literature on something, point me to one or two exemplar papers that just definitively show it. And thought about it and like, I, I can't make that challenge because I don't know any papers like that for anything. Right. And the reason, well, so, I mean, there's all the usual complaints you have about, you know, like, like so there could be some bias of the author or there could be a data coding error or, you know, like it's non-experimental or whatever, but so like, like here's the thing, even for what we think of as gold standard papers, it's an experimental paper. Uh, we, you know, it's uh, there's it's certified. They've released all the code, everything else. There's still the question of, yeah, well, what about the external validity? This is how the world worked in Arkansas between 1973 and 1978. Does the whole U.S. work that way now? Does the whole world work that way now? You don't know. Well, in that case, the paper doesn't actually show the thing that you wanted to show, which is like what's the effect of certain kind of teacher on certain kind of student outcomes now what can we use now to make up uh, to make up our minds about what would be good in terms of policy and that's why yeah. i say you know what a reasonable person does is what noah smith said don't do you know, or, or 
I mean, part of it would namely like, yeah, do a full literature review. Look at everything that's out there. Look at what the critics say. Like, like look, look at both sides. Go and weigh the quality of the evidence. Well, then finally, you know, this is something that didn't even really come up is you know, Bayesian priors, man. Look, there's just some things that make a lot more sense than other things. And the reason why people believe them is not really the research. The reason is that they just, the prior is just so strong. It's very common in economics to go and do things like we're going to find out whether the minimum wage really reduces employment. It's all right. Show me the paper where they try to find out whether asparagus really has a negatively sloped demand curve. Nobody does that. It's just accepted as, well, obviously asparagus is going to have a negatively sloped demand curve. Obviously, if you raise the price of asparagus, people buy less asparagus. And then the question is, right, fine. Suppose we go and we subject that position on asparagus to the same kind of research scrutiny that we've done for labor demand. Do you really think there aren't going to be a few papers saying, oh, it turns out that asparagus actually people buy more and the price is higher? Right, they're going to find that. And then the question is, all right, so some of the papers didn't come out right. Maybe the papers are screwed up some way. Maybe they're really good quality papers. But put that next to the prior and then do what Bayes told us, which is do an update of a super strong prior with some evidence that is so-so at best. And you're going to stick with the view that asparagus has a negatively sold demand curve. And this is why when I teach the minimum wage, I say, look, some of these papers that minimum wage that don't find the effect, they're good papers. But what they're saying is so implausible and the methods are so weak in general, even at their best, that you should only move from like 99% confidence to down to 97.7, right? It's not that it should change your whole worldview. And this does free you, by the way, from the sill and charybdis of either changing your mind based upon what the last high status paper said or just accusing perfectly honest researchers of fraud because you don't like their answer. And I've seen, I saw both things when I was at Princeton. I was there when those minimum wage papers were coming out and the people like them would have this giant superior attitude. Well, if you would just go and look at the science, you would know that it's been shown conclusively the minimum wage doesn't cause unemployment. I heard that kind of stuff. And then I, and I did hear it be like, those frauds, just liars. I was like, I don't know, I went through the paper pretty quickly. I don't think they're lying. I just think that the best methods aren't that good and the prior ought to be really strong. Yeah, I think there is there there's a kind of allure of like, you know, papers that say, you know, basically are gnostic papers that are basically like you thought that this was just common sense, you thought that this was intuitive that you could see it around you. Well, you're wrong. Yeah, yeah water runs uphill. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to say that economics is as strong as gravity. <laughs> but some of the stuff's pretty darn strong. Like you know, if you raise the price of asparagus, we'll sell less. I mean, like that, yeah. That's wrong. Come on. It's not wrong. Awesome. Um, last question of the show. Always the last question of the show for everyone. Um, what is something that is too much chaos needs more order and something that is too much order and needs more chaos, preferably that we haven't talked about today. All right, great. So before I answer, let me just say you can get uh, the new book, uh, You Will Not Stampede Me, Essays on Unconformism from Amazon. The paperback's only $12 because I do believe that when prices are lower, people buy more. And the ebook's $9.99. So if you want to really save money, do that. All right, so things where we got too much order and too much chaos. I'm worried both that I'll give you exactly the same answer I gave you last time or I'll give you a wildly different answer, but I will try not to remember what I said before. Let's see. 
I think this time I'm going to say we need more chaos in approaching possible romantic partners. We need people to just be willing to go up to a total stranger and introduce themselves and try to make something happen. I mean, I just talk to young people who are paralyzed with social anxiety, and I don't want people to be alone. I want people to find true love and be together. So more chaos. Don't worry so much. Um, you know, you know, yeah, if you can think you can get out, get, get away with asking you know, your uh, uh, a you know, let's let me this way. If it's true love and you work with someone, tell them. Like, if you get fired, it's worth getting fired for true love, man. All right, and then true I, love can transcend even civil yeah, rights laws. Yes, look, look. If someone thinks that true love is less important than the, the civil rights, like what's wrong with you? True love is so important. It's one of the most important things in the universe. I mean, this stuff, even if you believe in the laws, still, true love should conquer all and take precedence. All right. And then things where we need more order. Hmm. Let's see. Things where we need more order. Um, hmm. Uh, Always a yeah, tough question for yeah, libertarians. Yeah. Hmm. Um, you know, it's coming to me. Just give me a little bit more time to think. Um, yeah, actually, uh, here's one. Um, you know, doing backwards induction for your career, namely figuring out what you know, what job you want to end up with and then carefully planning out everything that you do in order to achieve that goal. I can't tell you how many times someone comes to me and they say, okay, I want to get a graduate degree in something. And I'll go, okay, what's your career goal? They'll say, well, my career goal is to get another degree after that. <laughs> That's not a career goal. <laughs> tell me what paying position you wish to have when you're all done with school, and then we'll figure out whether that is a good plan. So this is what I advise people to be much more strategic about what you're doing, figure out where you want to end up, and then go in the straightest possible line towards that thing. If you, if you don't know exactly, which is reasonable at a young age, Go in the direction of the right ballpark. It's like, I want to do something in about CS. All right, good. I can work with that. But to say, I want to do something that makes things better. All right, I can't, I can't work with that. It's too vague. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show. You definitely did something that made my day better. Hopefully right. made a lot Always of people Always a pleasure. And I better. look forward to you getting Tyler on to justify the claim that Autism is binary, which seems yeah. <laughs> autism is autism binary. That will be the that will be the headline for yep. that one. Yeah, you know, so so his book one. that was originally published as Create Your Own Economy and then was turned in uh, renamed as Age of the Infovore. That really is a book almost entirely about his his take on neurodiversity and neurotypicality. So maybe that'll be your in. Awesome. Yeah. Um, thanks for coming on again, right. and everyone pleasure. should buy your book. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I appreciate that, Brian. All right. All right. Have a great day, everybody. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to my episode with Brian Kaplan. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then the best way to help the show is to let a friend know. Just like we said at the beginning, a lot of people will probably value your recommendation specifically. And you can do that online or in person. You can also help us out by subscribing to the Substack. For an additional fee, you'll get some... Uh, more content, you'll get an additional kind of post-podcast reflection where I just go over some of the ideas uh, by myself on the episode, and you'll also get some paid articles on the Substack as well.
you can also help us out by leaving a 5-star review or by giving us comments, guest suggestions. We read everything that people write and, you know, we hope that uh, you have some good suggestions for us. Of course, you can also subscribe to the podcast. And if you do, you'll get another great episode next Monday. See you then!